please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We'll be spending time this evening in the Psalter in the 8th Psalm. Psalm chapter 8. I suppose that Psalms are like children. You're not supposed to have a favorite. But this is up there. What a wonderful psalm this is, and I'm going to read it here in just a moment, and as I do, I, I would encourage you to either read along in your Bible or simply listen and meditate on what the psalmist is saying about who God is and who we are in light of him. It's a wonderfully meditative psalm. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, with your word open now, we come with eager expectation that we might hear your voice that we might know your person and nature, your character, who you are and how you've made us, that we might revel in your glory and be encouraged in our own dignity and value as we bear the mark of our creator. Or what wonderful words you have in store for us tonight in your word. We pray that our ears would be open and attentive, that our hearts would be softened, and that our lips would respond in praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm chapter 8 to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers... The moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. People all over the world are searching for value, for personal dignity and worth, for acceptance. This pursuit of Worth and value in a worldly scheme often leads to terrible depression and anxiety, doesn't it? Questions like, how can I be good enough to be valued by others? How can I look good enough to be esteemed by others? How can I do good enough to be accepted by others? How can I accumulate enough stuff, enough power, enough friends, enough acclaim to finally feel good about myself? Externally, this pursuit of uh, worldly value is the result of advertisements designed to tell us what real worth looks like, what's acceptable and esteemed in a society. Internally, it's the result of covetousness, looking around at others whose outward lives appeal to us and wishing that we had what they have and then going after it with our strength. Now, there's the opposite danger of feeling totally worthless. 
And that uh, the opposite danger, I should say, of feeling totally worthless and pursuing value is of thinking that you are the most significant person in the world. And this also leads to terrible anxiety and depression for who feels adequate enough to maintain that sense of worth. I remember listening to an interview with Tom Brady, arguably the greatest quarterback to ever live, after winning his third Super Bowl title, and this was a long time ago when he won his first three. He was still in his 20s back then, I think. And after being interviewed uh, concerning his success in sports, he lamented that he just felt like there had to be something more than all this. Even the people who are at the peak of their field recognize that if their value is accumulated through worldly measures, they have to keep chasing after it. Who is up for that task? This is the kind of thinking that results from participation trophies, preschool graduation ceremonies, governments and parents who raise entitled youth which grow up into entitled adults. In other words, telling people that they are the center of the universe without any qualification. So on the one hand, you have people who feel inherently worthless, who are told that they're nothing but totally depraved wretches without qualification, leading to anxiety and despair. And on the other hand, people who are told that they're the center of the universe, that they're perfect and they can make no mistakes and that everything they do deserves acclaim without qualification. All joking aside, I do believe that our age of Instagram and TikTok and YouTube have created a pandemic of ego by simultaneously exalting mediocrity and mocking other people's failure. This is why we spend so much time getting ready to leave our homes. Heaven forbid someone sees us in an undignified or unworthy state. We care very much about how we look. All this to say that most people find their value in their ability to look good, to be successful, or to garner the praise of other men. And so I ask you this evening, where do you find your value upon what do you build your worth but at the same time lest we be guilty of of believing that we're the center of the universe without qualification what keeps you humble what keeps you humble these things seem to be diametrically opposed to one another exalting with worth and value and dignity and humility but rather they are rooted in one and the same truth and we'll see that This evening, I want us to look at Psalm 8 to see exactly where our dignity comes from and why it also grounds us humbly before the Lord. Now, before we get into the weeds of this psalm, it's worth noting that this is a song of praise. It's a psalm of David, a praise of David, and this is one of the rare unqualified psalms in the Bible. And what I mean by that is this is not rooted in some situation where David discovers that he needs to cry out to God for help or for rescue. This is not when Absalom, his son, chased him from Jerusalem. This is not when David had to feign insanity in front of the the people of Gath. This is rather unqualified. It's a spontaneous song of praise, in other words. It's as though David is walking around one night on the walls around Jerusalem, and he looks up at the sky and sees the moon and the stars and responds by asking a meditative question about who God is and who David is in light of God. 
this sort of practice is uh, uh, largely absent in our daily lives, isn't it? There's many of us here who enjoy the rigors of doctrinal study. And we can open a book like Romans and begin parsing out paragraphs and cross-referencing words and terms and looking at the things that Paul says about who Christ is and what justification means and, and how those relate to the Christian life. We love those things. We love reading the stories, perhaps, of Jonah and discovering these amazing things that happened, miracles that God did, words that God spoke, things that happened in ancient times. And of course we recognize there's a connection between them and us, but in large measure it ends somewhere between here and here. We love the the doctrine. Now, of course, there are devotional books that we enjoy reading. I myself love Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. Valley of Vision is a wonderful prayer book. It's very devotional to use. But how often do we walk around in creation and spontaneously meditate on the person of God? I mentioned a number of weeks ago a challenge that Sinclair Ferguson uh, offered to a group of people that he was preaching to. And he said something to the effect of, I would encourage you to try to spend five minutes talking out loud about Jesus. Five minutes, just five minutes. Five minutes is not a long time, right? Now, it's a long time if you've recently eaten Taco Bell and you keep hitting red lights on your way home. But it shouldn't be a long time for us to talk about Jesus for five minutes. And yet most of us would struggle to make our way through five straight minutes of conversation about who Jesus is, his person and his work, his character and his nature, the implications of his incarnation and his exaltation and what they mean for us in our daily lives. How much less God? Do we think about God in these sort of terms? Do we overflow with praise when we look at the heavens? I had a dear friend uh, in another part of the world a long, long time ago who came to me one Friday morning with tears in his eyes. And he said, last night I was grilling on the back porch. He's an older gentleman, just him and his wife at home. He said, I was just grilling for my, my wife and I. And I looked up, and it was that time of the evening where the sky starts to change color. And it starts to get dark. And you're aware, you know where the moon is. You can see the moon pretty clearly. But you're aware that the stars are, are just about to become visible to your eye. And he said, and I looked up right over top of my grill, and out in the distance there was one star that had become visible. And it was so bright. The sky was so clear. And he said, I looked at that star, and I realized in a moment what Psalm 8 meant. I looked at that star, and I realized that God spoke that star into existence. And if it's a star large enough for me to see at that distance, it's probably significantly larger than our own sun and God spoke it into existence, and yet he loves me? What a wonderful thing that David draws our attention to here. The majesty of God. We have become, frankly, desensitized to the glory of God in creation, let alone the glory of God in our salvation. It is good to sing God's praises, to meditate on his majesty, and to be reminded of his love for us. And so as we go through this psalm, I don't want us to be lost uh, in, in recognizing that this psalm is meant to speak to our hearts. It's meant to be an encouragement to us. It's meant to remind us the, who is the God that we worship and who are we in light of his majesty. 
I've not gone through a day in my life where some sin has not beset me or trouble has not assailed me or problems have not arisen. And yet this psalm exists in isolation from all those things. Because when those moments arise, a psalm like this serves as a foundational text for how we make it through those days, how we overcome those sins, how we find our way back to God in the midst of those problems because of who he is. These are very important texts for our hearts. Now, the first thing that we see about God's majesty is that it is ultimate. God's majesty is ultimate. Look at verses 1 and 9. Verses 1 and 9 repeat the same refrain. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Again, verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is called an inclusio. It's a literary device that you'll find often in the Hebrew scriptures, and it's designed to bookend the text. It bookends the text with a particular truth claim that's important for us to understand in light of the rest of the text. The idea here is that everything in verses 2 through 8 depends on the reality of verses 1 and 9. That's what a bookend does. It means that everything in between is rooted in the truth of the bookends. So verse 1 and 9 declare to us that God's glory is ultimate, that his majesty is great in all the earth. Everything else that we read then is couched under that reality. Everything that we're going to read about creation, about mankind, about all the beasts of the field, about the, the glory of God displayed in the mouths of infants, all of those things fall underneath the heading of God's ultimate majesty. God is ultimate in all the universe. His majesty as the covenant-keeping, creating, and dignifying, dignity-giving God of the universe is primary. And we can't miss that. We often read the Bible with a view to ourselves, don't we? Now, I don't mean to suggest that we don't look for what God is doing in Scripture or we're not concerned about who God is in Scripture. But it's often the case that our thoughts when we approach Scripture sound something like this. What does this text say to me in my current situation? What does it say about me and who I am, either as a sinner or as a redeemed child of God? How can it help me or direct me or teach me or encourage me? These are all good things. Of course, Scripture is written to us, isn't it? It's breathed out by God for our benefit. But at the root of it all, at the root of all of Scripture is the author of Scripture, God himself. He is primary. As John Calvin said rightly, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. And that's what the psalmist is doing here in our text. He's contemplating who God is. And then from there, he descends into thinking about all these other categories, which we're going to look at here momentarily. So what do we see about God? This is very simple. I feel like this is an elementary lesson, isn't it? What do we see about God in this text? He's majestic in all the earth. But there is so much truth packed in this little sentence O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth that we have to camp here for a moment and talk about it. First, we see that God's majesty is pervasive. God's majesty is pervasive. Notice that God is not just the God of heaven. His majesty, his name is great in all the earth. All the earth. 
And in fact, as we go through this text, we see that it includes above the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, and the work of your hands, the sheep and the oxen. God's majesty is pervasive. There is no place in all of the created order where God does not rule as sovereign Lord. He alone is king, and he is majestic in holiness and awesome in power, working wonders. God's majesty is pervasive. This is important to remember when someone else tries to claim that their name is majestic in all the earth. We look around us in the world today and we see people puffing themselves up as great rulers and leaders, as great thinkers and deciders, as, as creators of culture and, and uh, overseers of society. Presidents and kings and princes and dictators and rulers all acting as though they are the sovereign ones in all the earth. That their names are majestic in all the earth. And sometimes we fall right in line and we think if we could just have this person be in charge, then what we want would go out through all the earth. But scripture teaches us plainly that the Lord alone is majestic in all the earth. We sang this morning not to put our trust in princes because they return to the dust. God alone is eternal and unchangeable in his being, isn't he? God is majestic and his majesty goes throughout all the earth. It's pervasive, but not only is it pervasive across the scope of creation, it's also transcendent. It's above the heavens. That's an interesting phrase that it's above the heavens. You have set your glory above the heavens, he says in the end of verse 1. God's glory exists at a level that goes beyond the height of creation, the highest place to which we can't reach on our own, where none of us can go without the saving grace of God in Christ Jesus. The heavens where the angels who obey God perfectly and without hesitation, moment by moment, exist, where all the saints, the souls of just men made perfect, dwell in worship for all eternity. God's glory is above all that. Our minds can hardly grasp the distance that exists between us and God because no mind can. We can think about it in as great a geographic term as you want to. Neil has done an excellent job uh, drawing our attention to this in recent weeks as he talks about the fear of the Lord. That it would take something like 110 years traveling at light speed, 186,000 miles per second to go from one side of our galaxy to the other. And yet they would tell us today that there's somewhere between 100 billion and 2 trillion galaxies out there. Each with billions of stars. And the scriptures tell us that God holds them in the span of his hand. How majestic is this God? They recently discovered a wormhole, uh, not a wormhole, sorry. Uh, sounded like a Star Trek reference, it wasn't meant to be. A black hole, that's the word, a black hole. They recently discovered a black hole that's somewhere in the range of 300 light years wide. It's enough to upend the gravitational turning of an entire galaxy. Think about the amount of power that exists in something like that. I read uh, not too long ago uh, an article that was trying to articulate the and I'm no scientist, and so some of you out there will know where I'm lacking here in this illustration, but you can fill in the blanks. The amount of power that exists in the sun's energy. 
And uh, the conclusion was that one second of the sun's energy, of the total amount of energy produced by our sun, is equivalent to 100,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools filled with TNT and detonated simultaneously. One second of our sun's energy. And our sun is not a huge star. And God spoke them into existence. It's no wonder the psalmist says that your glory is above the heavens. Because if everything below the heavens he made and holds in his hand, how great must he be? So why do we live sometimes like he's this big? We're adopted children of God. And yet sometimes we pray as if we have no access to his power and majesty and his love for us. Now I know some of you budget and live on a tight budget. And my wife and I do as well. We budget and we've lived on very tight budgets in the past as well. We talked recently, my wife and children are traveling this week to visit her family. And I said to her as she was leaving on Friday morning, I'm so thankful that we're able to take this trip because I know people personally who would not be able to make this trip because the price of gas is so high right now. And I'm aware of that. And in humility, I'm thankful to God and to this church for providing for my family in such a way that we can do that. I don't think Elon Musk has ever worried about filling up a tank of gas. No? I mean, in this day and age, even with prices of gas, what they are, uh, I don't think he worries about that. He's worth, I don't know, $2 billion or something like that? $200 billion? Is that what it is? Some obscene amount of money. He doesn't worry about filling up his tank with gas. It's just a tank of gas. It's pocket change. And yet you and I are often prone to live as though we were living on a tight budget of God's majesty and power. Rather than living like we have access to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We don't pray as though Ephesians chapter 1 is true. That he is able to do far more than we could ask or even imagine. And so our prayers are limited by our small view of God. But the psalmist here reminds us that God's majesty is not only pervasive throughout the earth, it's transcendent above the heavens. The whole of the heavens can't contain God's majesty. That's how great he is. It's no wonder that he alone deserves our glory and our praise. Look at who he is. Our, our shorter catechism gives an excellent answer for who God is. God is a, a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Those are all wonderful things to believe about God. But really what they're all saying is he alone is majestic above the heavens and in all the earth. He's transcendent. Notice that David uses this language here, this anthropomorphic language about God's creation. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. The work of your fingers. Later in verse uh, 5, he'll say, you have given man dominion over the work of your hands, sheep and oxen and beasts of the field and birds and fish and so forth. The work of your fingers I think the implication here in David using these kind of small words, your fingers and your hands, is that God didn't wear out his muscles creating the universe. 
It wasn't a hard task. It wasn't carrying a large burden on his back. It didn't take great biceps or mighty forearms. Just the work of his fingers. Like turning a dial. Like taking the cap off a soda can or a soda bottle. As easy as it could be for him. Everything that he made was easy for him. In fact, of course, Genesis tells us that he spoke it into existence and he formed man out of the dust of the ground. But David here is reflecting on the fact that all of this amazing creation over which God's majesty reigns was nothing to him. Simple. Easy. You fathers out there, have you ever opened something for one of your children that they struggled mightily for many, many minutes to open? twist in the top and they can't get it off or trying to take a toy apart or get these you know how legos were designed simply to break your fingernails and they they can't get those two lego small lego pieces apart and you just walk up and pop them apart and your child looks at you and goes i can't wait till i'm a dad and i can do that too this is what david's doing here in this psalm he's looking at the moon and the stars and he's going that's the work of your fingers How can we ever feel like our God is inadequate to the tasks that we need him for? Unable to accomplish all that he has said he will do. Unable to help us in our time of need, lead us through our time of trouble, uphold us and rescue us from our sin. God's majesty is pervasive and it's transcendent and it's counterintuitive. We We picture a God that looks like a Greek statue with perfect physical form, holding a javelin in his hand, ready to slaughter his enemies that are against him. And yet God here in Psalm chapter 8 receives praise for his majesty out of the mouths of babies and infants. That's counterintuitive. You would uh, would imagine that the chief among those who sing God's praise would be the kings and rulers and the mighty men of the earth. Those are the ones that establish God's strength. Those are the ones that prove God's majesty. The mightiest among us are the ones who ought to prove God's majesty. Rather, he says, it's little babies and infants who establish my strength. It's the truth that even a child can understand that silences my foes. It's the fact that God is evident in the moon and the stars that even the youngest children in this room can look up and give glory to God in heaven for all the amazing things he's done, that silences God's enemies because it's out of the mouths of babies and infants that he's established strength. It's not out of the mouths of many wise people and philosophers and and theologians and mighty strong men and kings and rulers. It's the simple truth of who God is and what he's done that even a child can comprehend and speak aloud that silences God's enemies. The devil has no word to respond to a child who says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't love to look at deep theological issues and truths and wrestle with these weighty matters of doctrine. Rather, it's simply to say that God has revealed himself to us, and it doesn't take a PhD to know him. It just takes faith like a child. Isn't that a wonderful truth for many who would love to know more about God, love to be able to answer their friends' questions? I know that apologetics is a scary topic for many of you. You think, what if I decide to start sharing the gospel with my neighbor or coworker and they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? Well, 
once again, we find our value in being successful and able to answer questions articulately, don't we? Rather, the Bible tells us to just point them to the things that we do know about God. Look at, look at the stars. How can you look at those stars and not realize that there's a God in heaven who made them? And if he made them, then he made you. And if he made you, that implies ownership, doesn't it? And so how do you relate to him? Out of the mouths of babies and infants. God's majesty is pervasive, it's transcendent, it's counterintuitive, and it's imminent. So we understand the idea of transcendent means high and exalted and above and lifted up. And imminent means close and near to us and with us. And I don't want us to miss this line. O Lord... Now, that's God's covenant name. See how it's all capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bible? O Lord, that's the name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. It is God's covenant-keeping name, the name of his steadfast faithfulness. All of the promises of God that David grew up knowing, knowing and hearing about and reciting are rooted in this name. O Lord, our Lord, lowercase, capital L-O-R-D. Uh, Adonai, that's the, the ruler, sovereign, the king. O Lord, our king, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But the most important word in there is not God's covenant name, and it's not the word Lord, Adonai, and it's not majestic, and it's not above the heavens, and it's not in all the earth. It's this little word, ours. O Lord, our Lord, our Lord. Our God is the one who's majestic in all the earth. Our Lord is the one who has created all things by the word of his power and sustains all things by the word of his power and upholds all things by the word of his power. Our Lord is the sovereign ruler over the heavens and above the heavens and over and throughout all the earth and who made everything. Our Lord. Our Lord. He's not just some Lord, some God. He's not just a God, a Lord. He's ours. And that ought to inform our worship. We're not singing to a, a giant rock of granite in outer space somewhere. We're not singing to some dead teacher who lived thousands of years ago and left us with good things to, to remember. We're not singing to an indifferent God who we hope to please enough for him to welcome us to be near him someday. Rather, we worship our God who chose us out of all the earth to be his own people. I was reminded by a friend of recently of this wonderful idea that Abraham was wandering around in Mesopotamia totally ignorant to who God is, a pagan worshiper, probably of, of the sun or the moon, living with his family in abject rejection of God, and the Lord showed up to him and said, I want you to be mine, and I'm going to be your God. He's our God. He's chosen us and redeemed us and paid the price to purchase us into his family. It's no wonder that David overflows with adoration and praise when he writes this psalm, is it? He's aware of who God is and of whose he is. And it leads naturally to this question about human dignity. 
God is ultimate. God is primary, as we've said. He's majestic. His majesty is pervasive and transcendent and counterintuitive. His majesty is over all things. <clears throat> it's primary. It takes precedence. And it leads us to ask this natural question. When I look at the heavens, when I look at all these stars, when I see the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Notice that, that he changes uh, the way that he describes mankind here in verse 4. The, the word for man there is kind of a generic humanity idea. What is mankind that you are mindful of him? What is, what is humanity? Who are we? What is this race of people that you've made that you are mindful of us? I imagine somewhere in some little hole in the ground, there's a bunch of ants going, man, those people are huge up there. I mean, they just walk around and they stomp on us when we walk by. What are we that they even think about us, right? Ants, little ants. That doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the difference between God and us, of his transcendence and his majesty. And so when David looks up at the stars, he goes, he knows who he is. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And then he takes it to an even more personal level. Or the son of man, me, that you care for him. Have you ever felt that way before? Have you ever felt that way in thinking about God and thinking about your own sin? Spending time reflecting on the things that you've done that you wish you had done differently or the hours or days weeks or months or years or perhaps decades of your lives that were lived in rebellion against God hating him hating his people and his word rejecting the truth disobedient full of malice and anger and wrath and slander and envy and you think oh lord what am I that you care about me at all? And David says, wait a minute. What am I that God cares about me? I'm the one that he made just a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned with glory and honor. This is the answer to our question about value. <clears throat> God has made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. The angels is the word that, that, that's translated in Hebrews chapter 2. God has made us, you and me, mankind, in his image and crowned us with glory and honor. My friends, where is your value found? Your value is found in the image of God stamped on your soul as a created person as a human being made in God's image. Our worth is not found in our successes. Our dignity is not found in our looks or our accomplishments. Our purpose is not even found in the things that we do or the things we decide or the way that we are. All of our worth is found in the fact that God made us as the pinnacle of his creation, as the chief of his created order. 
He crowned us with glory and honor, gave us dominion over the rest of it. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. You gave him dominion over the works of your hands. All things have been put under our feet, sheep and oxen and beasts and wild things and birds and fish. God has made us as the chief, the pinnacle, the top of his created order. And we know this is true. You'll notice that the uh, sermon title is The Center of the Universe. You're probably not very likely to hear a sermon like this in many Reformed churches. You certainly won't hear it spoken around many good Christian dinner tables. Uh, You're the center of the universe, right? We avoid saying that language to our children, don't we? We don't want to tell our kids that they're the center of the universe without qualification. And this is what I meant earlier. We are the center of the universe with qualification. And the qualification is that our value and dignity is derived from God having crowned us with glory and honor. Look at this psalm with me uh, from the big picture perspective. I want to show you that this is exactly what David means. uh, That he intends for this to be the conclusion that you walk away from this psalm with. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see those parallel bookends in verses 1 through 9, right? And then in verse 1b through 3 and verse 6 through 9, we read about the created order. So God's majesty... Parallel to that is the created order, the heavens, the moon, and the stars which you have put in place, the fish of the sea and the birds and the wild beasts. See how those are parallel reflections of God's majesty and creation? What is at the very center of this psalm? At the very center, literarily, as it's structured to draw our attention to the main point, it's this phrase, what is man? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. This psalm is written to highlight the fact that we are the pinnacle of God's creation. Our value is found in the fact that the God who is majestic over all the earth and above the heavens made us with glory and honor. Where do you find dignity? In the fact that you're a created person and the fact that God made you. Where do you find humility? In the fact that you're a created person and the fact that God made you. Do you see how those two things go hand in hand? Our humility before God is rooted in the fact that God had to make us and crown us with derived glory and honor. But our value is found in the fact that God did make us and did crown us with glory and honor. What a wonderful reality that these things come together in creation. That God has given us a reason to be full of joy, full of worth, full of dignity and of value because he made us. And yet a reason to lower ourselves to the ground in humble adoration like David does in this psalm. Because it's a derived glory. Because he had to make us. This psalm is used twice in the New Testament. I'm sure you're familiar with these texts. Matthew 21, uh, I'll turn there, and you're invited to turn there as well. If you'd like, we'll be very quick. In Matthew 21, verse 16, Jesus cleanses the temple. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, Magnalia Day, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? 
Jesus is the recipient of the worship that Psalm 8 demands of us. His name is majestic in all the earth. He has been exalted above the highest heavens and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the one to whom Psalm 8 draws our attention because he deserves the worship that Psalm 8 demands. His name is the only name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. His name has been highly exalted above all the earth. And the second place that we read also refers to him, and that's in Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author to the Hebrews is speaking about the preeminence of Christ. In chapter 1, he talks about his preeminence over all the prophets and his preeminence over uh, prophecy and, and previously given word. He tells us that he's preeminent uh, above Moses, that he's greater than Moses in chapter 3. And in chapter 2, we read, beginning in verse 5, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. By the way, that's a great uh, get-out-of-jail-free card if you can't remember the reference. Okay. Uh, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him for a little while lower than the angels you have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet now in putting everything in subjection to him he left nothing outside his control at present we do not see yet everything in subjection to him but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of god he might taste death for everyone you and i have inherent worth because God made us in his image. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 8. And in our union with Christ, we know that we who suffer with him will also reign with him over all things. This psalm, oh my, it reminds us who God is, great and majestic above all the earth. Who we are, inherently dignified and valuable in light of our created status in the image of God. And it draws our gaze towards Christ, who himself deserves the worship that Psalm 8 demands because his name has been highly exalted in all the earth. I want to conclude by simply identifying three truths from this psalm, two of which I've already mentioned, and this is simply for you to reflect on as we leave here this evening. Number one, that the God who created all things by the work of his hands, who owns it all and reigns supreme as king, is our God. If God can be for us, who can be against us? So why do we fear men rather than God? Number two, that we are created by God as the crowning achievement of his glorious work in creation. We are central while God is ultimate. We are central insofar as our domain and our value and our glory is derived from God himself. Now, we can abuse that, of course, and that's not what I'm talking about. But our value and dignity is central in God's plan for creation because we've been made in his image. So for those of you who really do struggle with issues of self-worth and dignity, of value and of appreciation, 
know well that the God who made you and formed you and loves you holds you in high regard among his creation. And number three, and I will say this with very little qualification. Most importantly, I want us to see that we must view the Imago Dei as more central to our anthropology than the doctrine of total depravity. Let me say that again. We must view the Imago Dei being created in God's image as more central to our anthropology, our doctrine of mankind, than total depravity. While I certainly don't mean to downplay the truth of total depravity, that is not how we were created. We were created in righteousness and holiness and with dominion over the creatures, as our shorter catechism teaches us. The total depravity into which Adam drove us is foreign to our personhood. The Imago Dei is essential to our personhood. Total depravity is accidental to our personhood. And when we look out at people who are different than us and who have rejected God, who will be punished for the rejection and rebellion against God, but as we look at people who are different from us and who don't believe the things we believe or don't appreciate the morals that scripture teaches or don't vote the way that we vote or fill in the blank whatever it is that causes you some level of discomfort with people out there in the world it is important to remember first and foremost that they are created in the image of god and because of sin they're depraved but they were created in the image of god i think far too often we look at people principally as totally depraved, and if we can get them saved, they'll be image bearers. But the reality is, all mankind bears the image of God. That was tainted in the fall, but not lost. It's why God, in Genesis chapter 9, tells Noah, knowing that the entire earth is about to fall right back into wickedness, starting with Noah, man was made in God's image, therefore don't shed his blood. That's not been lost. And that's essential to our beings ontologically. The fact that we're made in the image of God supersedes the accidental reality of our total depravity. And we can't miss that as we look out at a lost and dying world as wicked as it may be. There's a reason why Jesus could look out on the crowds on the hillside knowing that most of them would reject him. Many of them would be complicit in his death. The majority of them were only there for the tricks that he was doing. And he looked out and saw them and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Psalm 8 teaches us that the God who created all things is our God. And he is majestic above the heavens. That you and I were made in his image and have been crowned with inherent worth and dignity and glory and honor. How dare we think that we're nothing when God says that we're something. And importantly... So was everyone else. And so I don't want us to leave here without our anthropology being challenged, without our thoughts about mankind being shaped by Scripture, that as we engage and encounter with wickedness in the world, evil men and women, neighbors who are rude to us and laugh at our faith, parents and children who reject our beliefs, that we first and foremost pray for them and love them in humble recognition that they too have been crowned with glory and honor.
because they've been made in the image of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the biblical truths that encourage our hearts and that challenge our thinking. It's so easy to go through life uh, without spending any time in deep meditation or contemplation of you or of ourselves or of mankind, but your word simply will not allow us to do that. Thank you for this psalm that David wrote so many, many years ago, perhaps looking up at the night sky seeing the stars and the moon that you made with just the work of your fingers, the simple, easy thing it was for you to create the universe. And he declared rightly that your name is majestic in all the earth and above the heavens. God, would you give us a greater appreciation for your glory and creation that as we drive down the roads and see the trees and hear the sounds of the birds, as we vacation in the mountains and see the rolling hills, as we vacation at the beach and see the mighty waves of the ocean, that we would not forget the one who made them all. That our hearts would be tuned to worship the God who is majestic and power and awesome in wonder. And Lord, help us to think rightly of ourselves, that as we know your design for mankind, that we would find worth and value in our image barrenness. The fact that you made us and crowned us and have given us dominion, Lord, help us to exercise it with wisdom and godliness. Help us to love our neighbor as ourselves as we recognize that even our worst enemy shares the image of God, tainted as it may be. And there's worth and value in that person because you've made them. Help us to think rightly about our fellow man. Not neglecting the reality that we are totally depraved and without hope aside from your saving grace and mercy. So Lord, help us hold these things in balance together. Lord, would you go before us this week as we depart from this place and lean into the week ahead of us that we would model the grace of God that we've heard in the word this weekend and extol the glory of God in our homes, in our workplaces, and to the ends of the earth. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.